Good evening. You're listening to the Yena podcast recording on Tuesday, the 19th of April. And uh, with me this evening, I'm Craig. With me this evening, I've got Mark. Hey. And Roman. Hello. Did you guys have a good Easter? Um, yes. Yes. I, I think like you, Craig, I went to a church service. <laughs> well, yes, I did attend a church service in my office, <laughs> attended remotely. I uh, clicked on the um, Arise church service and sort of sat through that and uh, had a bit of a giggle. Yeah, yeah, I was there as well and um, noticed straight away that David Farrier had connected in, which I thought was hilarious. So I gave him a little heart to say I liked his message when he uh, introduced himself. So I guess we better explain what this is all about. Maybe after we found out if Bronwyn had a good Easter. Bronwyn? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, I had a great Easter. Um, you know, if they if I call Christmas um, Atheist Children Gets Presents Day, then Easter is Atheist Children Get Chocolate Day. And yes, I did get lots of chocolate, which I bought for myself. Because <laughs> no damn bunny is going to get me chocolate. I bought my own chocolate as well. The Easter bunny's not real. So where's my chocolate coming from? <laughs> uh, I think you're married. So clearly uh, someone's doing some unequal emotional labor in that house. <laughs> my wife is carrying on tradition. And you're saying she's basically tricking me where my parents used to. This is <laughs> shocking. And and did you did you consume hot cross buns as well then? No, no. But bringing it back to Arise, actually, I was phoned by a journalist today and asked for comment about Arise Church. Um, mm. Today, FM are looking into Arise with everything that's happened in the last few weeks. And the um, the researcher that was talking to me asked about hot cross buns, which is an interesting one, because for many years, Arise has been handing out free hot cross buns. They do it at schools and they do it at low cost housing in Wellington as well. And the hot cross buns, are, you know, they're touted as being this amazing philanthropic effort that Arise Church are doing. But of course, every pack of hot cross buns has the address of the church and the service times on it to let people know that should they want to reciprocate and come to a service, that's where and when they're supposed to go. So uh, it makes me think maybe it's not so much a one-sided transaction. There's an expectation of at least trying the church out in exchange for getting these hot cross buns. But hot cross buns are at least a bit more substantial than what we had in my Sunday school. They would try to teach the story of the resurrection using um, just some sort of soft dough and a marshmallow. You wrap the marshmallow in the soft dough, and then once it's all baked up and you open up the dough, the marshmallow's gone. Oh, no, Jesus is resurrected. And that's how, uh, that's how the message got through you, with a lot of disappointment. <laughs> Did the marshmallow come back, though? Three no. days later. Well, the, well, did the marshmallow ever leave? Because you know the marshmallow was embedded in the in the dough. Hang on, and, and do they get the whole Jesus has ridden the dough has risen thing? Do they do they fit that one in? God, it's been years. I'm sure they did. <laughs> I hope so. So attending the service was quite interesting because I noted the number of people who were streaming it, and it was about 160 people. And I thought, given that this was Easter Sunday, which is supposedly the um, pinnacle of the Christian calendar that 160 people showing up was a pretty low number. And especially since the number was possibly boosted by people going along to have a look, people like us who wouldn't normally attend, who were only there to um, yeah. see what was going to happen. 
I, I don't think that says much because of a few things. Firstly, um, Bronwyn and I a few months ago attended an online destiny service, and I think there were maybe 80 people at that one. So I think maybe you get families attending. Um, maybe some people don't watch it live. They watch later. Secondly, with the Rise Church is that their online services at the moment, they're running like six or seven of them a day. And with this Easter service, it was it was all canned. It was pre-recorded and ready to go. So somebody was just pressing play every hour and a half or so to start the next service going. So 9.30 a.m. was the service we were at. I wouldn't blame a lot of people on Easter Sunday for not turning up to the first service of the day. Um, and the last thing is that the Easter service, although it was it was canned for the online people, it wasn't canned if you turned up in person and it seems like their churches are open and arises a lot about what's going on in the moment, being there with the band and the lights and everything else. So I would wouldn't be surprised that most people, as soon as they're able to just avoid the online service and end up going in person for that entire rock concert experience that you get with the rise. And they have multiple in-person services a day. Like they have a, they have their 11 o'clock service or their 10 o'clock service. And then they have one at like around four 30 or six o'clock in the evening on a Sunday, usually. And those ones can have a maximum of attendance of about 200 people. Yeah. Yeah. I think depending on the campus, I think some of the larger campuses even have like two services in the morning Mm -hmm. and then one in the early evening. So yeah, they're pretty busy. So I'd like to think that Arise didn't get many people turning up, but I'm worried that most people, despite all the revelations that David Farrier has been writing about, I think most people will still be going at least at first, somehow they'll justify why it was like this. And um, I'm, I'm sure in their head, it's all fine. It'll all blow over. And, uh, you know, as people were typing in the service chat, let's focus on Jesus. This isn't about anything else. This is all about God and glorifying him. So, yeah, a lot of it's like we just want to carry on worshiping, even though our leader has been um, abusing people in various ways and negligent in other ways. Did, uh, did Jesus show up? <laughs> I I didn't see Jesus show up, but I did see two interesting people show up in the chat. And you might be able to shed light on some of this, Craig. The first one that popped in was Satan and Satan appeared in the chat and then disappeared really quickly. And then he was very quickly followed up by Skeptic and Skeptic turned up, wrote one comment and was blocked from the chat. Would you know anything about that? Uh, Only about about the Skeptic one. I, I was not Satan. (laughs) <laughs> but you were skeptic. We are admitting I, it here, are we? Yes, I was skeptic. I didn't write anything. I didn't write anything really bad. No, you didn't, did you? But yet you were removed straight away, which will have just been for the skeptic name. That was enough Possibly. that they got rid yeah. of you. I think they removed my comment, but I was able to stay in there because I think I, I think I wrote a comment a bit later on, which was uh, less, <laughs> uh, less, less inflammatory, perhaps. But uh, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I, I mean, it wasn't even inflammatory. I was just commenting on the video they were playing, and uh, they showed a, a film projector. And uh, since I've recently uh, finished watching uh, The Man in the High Castle, I thought, ah, oh, this is interesting. They're, they're showing an alternative view of reality, um, playing a playing an old style film and a projector and everything on a on a makeshift screen. I thought, oh, this is just like The Man in the High Castle. Life so, imitates art, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess the, the latest revelations are that um, 
that John Cameron has been removed or has stepped down from the board but remains on as a an employee. And it seems the announcements of today are that um, he's still going to be preaching. So uh, it seems like very little has changed. Yeah, I think what they've done is just enough to make it look like they care and make it look like something is changing. Um, they've talked about how this is for impartiality, that while an investigation goes on from a third party, that John is stepping back. But the way it was worded very much sounds like the expectation is that John will step straight back into his roles afterwards. And I think David Farrier somewhere documented that in the constitution for the church, Every board member is approved by John Cameron and only gets a 12 month unless they're reapproved by John Cameron. So the entire board basically is chosen every year by John Cameron. So he can put himself back on the board without any problems. Yeah, I tried to do a bit of research about him and just see if there's any sort of documentation as to what sort of money he was making and uh, and, and sort of what sort of lifestyle he was living um, there was nothing that sort of easily popped up. I mean, I'm sure if I spent some more more time on it, I could have uncovered something. But uh, it, it does not seem like he's uh, well documented in terms of being sort of uh, living a lavished lifestyle. Um, no, I mean, he does pretty well. So, um, I mean, I went to his birthday party maybe back in 2006. Um, I've seen his house. It's in or the last time I saw his house, it was in Aotea. Uh, it's a it's a modern um, housing complex and he had a pretty nice house within there. And still, that's yeah. 16 years ago. Uh, yeah, the house, I think maybe was about 10, 12 years ago, I will have seen, but he's doing pretty well. I did read someone document or talking online about, you know, seeing him in a very expensive restaurant about them whenever they have their conference at the Intercontinental Hotel, booking the most expensive, nicest rooms and staying there as the leadership. So I think he does fairly well. I've also heard about the love offerings he gets whenever he goes and speaks at another church and how beyond his salary, which sadly we can't see, there's not enough detail in a charity's return to be able to see individual salaries. But beyond that, which I believe is sizable, um, he also gets these donations, these love offerings when he speaks at other churches. So from what I understand, he's not doing badly at all. And, you know, given how much the church is bringing in and how much they rely on these unpaid interns to do a lot of the heavy lifting um, metaphorically and, and literally physically with, you know, chairs and stage equipment and everything else that has to be lifted out and put back every weekend. I, uh, I think there's a lot of money in the church, but I don't think many of the people working for the church see that money. So the few that do see it likely see a fair bit of it. Mm. Yeah, they had a reported revenue of, um, what, $13 million annually or something. So that's a fair chunk of change, I guess. Yeah, it's a lot. In the in the years that I've been watching, I remember there was a period of a few years where I'd log into charity services every year. Each year, it would just rise by a million dollars, that they'd be getting a million dollars more than the year before. They were you know, doing pretty well as a church at pulling people in and keeping that money coming in. And that does really seem to be their focus is the money. Going to be able to afford the hot cross buns. <laughs> Again, it's just the lost leader, right? You know, yeah, if you spend exactly. two thousand dollars on hot cross buns and convince even one family 
to come to your church, you're going to make more than that $2,000 in tithes. But you're you're assuming, you're assuming that they've had to pay for the hot cross buns. You know, I'd say somewhere within their membership, they probably have bakers who are members and therefore they're getting hot cross buns for free. So they're not even spending a dime. It's just free advertising. That is a really good point. And that reminds me of um, a few years ago in Newtown, Arise Church got into this thing of trying to build a new playground for the kids in Newtown. And I remember seeing the advertising. It was, you know, very much Arise Church building this playground. And then in small print underneath, it basically said that Arise Church weren't paying for a damn thing. They were getting local businesses to put the money in, but they were making sure that their name was front and center with all the advertising as if they were the ones paying for it. But they absolutely were not. And uh, the local businesses would have been getting a tax deduction from the donation to the church. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I mean, but that's just, you know, that that is what it is. They are donating to a charity, so it's fair enough for the businesses. Um, but yeah, it was just funny that Arise were making it out as if it was them, and they were then just getting the money from the company, even though Arise, even back then, could well afford to have done it all by themselves. They're too savvy for that. They've also done things like with the Christchurch earthquakes, um, they'd send down a truck of food, but they'd get their members to go out and buy the food at retail prices from supermarkets, deliver them to the church. The church would then get interns and other staff to um, and volunteers to box it all up and put it in the back of trucks, and then they'd drive it down to Christchurch, all the while filming the whole thing and turning it into a slick set of videos that they could put up online to show just how amazing they were. So even when they were doing this, you know, there was somebody behind it going, we need to document this. We need to make these really cool looking videos showing just how great we are at helping people. Yep. It's all um, a nicely planned, smoothly run business operation. Yeah. Which is sad to see from a church. Um, I guess it makes sense. It would make a church, you know, do very well. Um, But it does feel a little bit cynical, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But then we cynical people (laughs) expect that, don't we? (laughs) Us sceptical people. We are not cynics. Oh, no, of course not. Right, right. There's a a bit of a Venn diagram crossover there, I think. Particularly when it comes to religious organisations. So in the newsletter over the weekend, uh, which uh, Bronwyn and I wrote, um, I talked about um, some videos that our old friend uh, Rebecca Watson, the skeptic and former host of uh, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, put out regarding Mataranga Maori. Um, And so that has been kind of an interesting topic over the last few years. So just to provide a bit of background, um, so back in 2020, it was the Department of Education. um, What helped me out with this, Mark? What did they put out? They put out some sort of a statement to say that they're going to be introducing Mataranga Māori into the curriculum for high school and wanted some feedback on the changes to the curriculum. Yeah, so I think it was more Māori in general. It was trying to bring Māori ideas and concepts into the classroom, and they had put together a set of documents detailing just suggestions for how a new curriculum could look that would 
um, be more inclusive of Maori language and uh, Maori ideas. So it was overall, it was a really it was a really nice idea. It's something that I guess New Zealand has been lacking for far too long. And I think as well as that, that might have been NCA level one. I think they've done another one since. So they've had another NCA level where they've um, put up a suggested curriculum. And they asked at the time they asked for feedback. So they were saying, here's what we're thinking. Please, everybody send in your feedback. Let us know what you think. So New Zealand Skeptics sort of took a look at that and we put together some comments on their document, uh, which were largely positive, I think. Um, our, our only concerns at the time were that there was always the possibility that uh, pseudoscience ideas could be introduced into the teaching. And so we sort of put a few words down to, to warn about the possibility of that and that that, that would need to be checked. Um, but, but otherwise, we thought it was a good idea. Yeah, so there was a science curriculum document. It was Earth and Something Sciences that had a, a few ideas that, it, it felt like maybe there was a, a possibility that they could have been taught uncritically, some ideas about Maori origins of, uh, of New Zealand and causes for earthquakes and things like that. So where, where we saw those and saw that there was a possibility that that was going to be taught as if it was fact, we, um, we certainly spoke up and said, hey, we're not, we're not sure this is a good idea. Um, but looking more broadly at the curriculum, it was, it was great. It was really nice to read. It takes me back to my primary school days, where I remember hearing about the uh, the myths of uh, how the the North Island and the South Island uh, came to to exist, and I think how the the North Island was shaped like a hook or something, and uh, and uh, the mainland was a, was a canoe. This is uh, that's about as much of the detail that I remember from uh, something like fifty years ago. So. Uh, anyway, so um, uh, Rebecca Watson put out uh, a couple of videos, um, which we took a look at. Um, so, so there was some controversy last year um, when there were seven um, professors from the University of Auckland wrote a letter to the listener. How should we describe this? They were that well, they titled their letter "In Defense of Science." And they were critical of the idea of Matarangi Māori being treated as science and taught in, in the classrooms as such. Um, so that did not go down very well with, with a bunch of people. Um, and so there was, a, there was a huge response to that. Um, there was an open letter uh, that was written um, by a couple of people that we know. So Associate Professor Susie Wiles and Professor Sean Hendy led the charge of writing an open letter, uh, which gathered around about 2,000 signatures, um, saying that, hey, we we don't agree with the assertion that teaching Matarangi Māori is, is a bad thing. So, yeah, there's some, there's some controversy around this. And... Um, New Zealand Skeptics has received some uh, some correspondence on the topic where at least some people have expected us to come out in um, strong support of the uh, in defense of science letter um, which we which we have resisted doing. Yes, I think in at least one piece of correspondence we've been asked why we're not defending science um, and in that one it certainly feels like there, there's a large assumption there that defending the seven letter writers is the same as defending science and of course if 
if these people, what they'd written was flawless and there were no problems with it. And it really was a purely uh, factual science-based um, letter that talked about things in terms that weren't open to criticism, then, then maybe we would have done. But for me, at least reading that letter, at the very least, it felt tone deaf. It felt like they hadn't really read it back and considered the potential implications of the letter. Um, and of course, as so often happens with these kinds of conversations, as soon as somebody points out or 2000 people point out that maybe they got something wrong, often people, they, they like to double down, right? They don't like to admit that maybe they should have done it differently. They just like to reiterate and stick to their guns. And that seems to be what happened with this. Uh, and it perhaps wasn't helpful that uh, Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne um, uh, joined on, the, on that side of things as well and started criticising uh, the, the concept of, of teaching it. So there... Um, point seems to be that they think that this is equivalent to teaching um, Maori creationism in the science class as if it were a fact. And um, so our, our position on this is that if that ever does happen, then we will definitely be against it. But there's no indication yet that that has actually, that's the intent of this. And I mean, when we've been doing the um, three, you know, our year in skepticism project, you know, we've come across some old journal articles, and this has been the concern of Matara Maori in the classroom has actually been a concern for well over a decade amongst our leader, amongst our membership. You know, we have journal articles written about it. But coming in as sort of um, someone who didn't go to school in New Zealand, it's really interesting. I, I, I do see the concern about creationism in the science class, but we don't see this sort of energy um, going in towards um, religious education in schools. Now for international listeners in New Zealand, how does it work? Is it like religion education is offered by external sources in the school. Yeah. If you want to, you have to opt out. You are automatically opted into this religious education. If you are up, if you want to opt out, you have to physically either leave the school um, or your parents have to find something for you to do for, for that half hour that the religious education is going on, or yeah. you are put into a library or something else. You know, you can't so, go off and do another class. And they, they, they technically close the school for that period. Yeah, so yeah. The school is actually it's, it's, teaching. So it's not just just quickly. It's not religious education. Okay. It is religious instruction. Oh. So religious education is normally a comparative le set of lessons where they teach you about world religions. They're educating you about religion. Mm -hmm. What happens in New Zealand is religious instruction, where somebody comes into the school, as you say, normally it's someone external, but it can also be a teacher, mm -hmm. and they will basically teach you a single religious belief as if it were truth. So you're not just learning the facts of a religion, you're being indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. um, and the way it works, it's something called the Nelson Clause. So we, we have a really, really, at least for primary school kids, we have a really good law which states that um, their education should be of a secular nature. Now, the problem the government had many years ago was that this wasn't happening, um, that a lot of schools were allowing religious people to come in and teach religious instruction. And the government was like, well, we've got to do something about this because our law says this shouldn't be happening. And it is. And I think it was especially helping it happening in Nelson in the South 
island. And the solution the government appears to have come up with is how about we add a loophole to the new Education Act that kind of allows this to happen? And as Craig says, the loophole is that technically the single classroom in the school is shut. And because it's technically shut and it's not no longer part of the open school, this means that it's no longer education, so it doesn't have to be secular. But of course, to the school kids, they don't see any difference. The school kids are still sitting in their same class. They may or may, na- may, or may not get someone external come in to teach that half-hour lesson. And the lessons will involve things like being given lollies and, uh, and other treats and the people who were excluded. Yeah. That, so sometimes they're allowed to go into the library. There have been some horrific stories of kids being sent out to the playing field to pick up rubbish for the half hour while the lesson's going on or being taken into the staff room and being told to do the dishes, the staff dishes while religious instruction is happening for those that are in there. Plus, lots and lots of children who, despite being opted out, end up just being shoved into the classroom anyway because it's easier than having to find somewhere else for them to sit for the session. So that whole thing about religious instruction in New Zealand is a mess. And the sooner we can get it fixed, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, to be to be worried about, you know, Maori creation myths being taught for maybe one unit versus, say, a regular half hour session being indoctrinated into our young children and our primary age kids. I don't know what what on the measure of things, what is the bigger problem? That is a really good point. Given that primary school, you know, the earlier you can get to someone with a bad idea, the more it takes root. So primary school is a worrying place. And until recently, until a very recent law change, or not even a law change, a guideline change, which tells schools that they really should be doing opt-in rather than opt-out. Before then, I think it was a full half of our secular state primary schools had religious instruction classes happening. Thankfully, that's dropping now. One of the one of the um, churches, unsurprisingly, was a rise church. A rise church got in the news big time a few years ago because they started offering religious instruction classes at a school in Kandala without even getting permission from the board um, of trustees of the school, which is how you have to do it. They just got invited by a teacher and started offering the lessons without ever getting legal permission to do it, which. Again, it just fits the form of a rise school, but it was really disappointing. In fact, I was outside that school handing out leaflets and educating parents at one point because it was just such a horrible thing to be happening. Yeah, and you can imagine that there are probably some religious teachers who might well encourage this because they see it as, as their duty to um, in, introduce their, their students into a religious worldview if, it, if that's what they believe themselves. I, I remember back in my primary school days, another, another of getting that sort of uh, instruction where you we had a teacher. Well, we had somebody come in. I don't know whether they were a teacher or not, but I certainly remember those um, classes being taught where they were talking about uh, religious ideas and Jesus and uh, heaven and hell. And um, from what I can recall, it was all fairly primitive kind of stuff. It's uh, like if you're good, you'll go to heaven, and if you're bad, you go to hell and all that sort of <laughs> stuff but uh. which is it's not good right i mean that that's another thing that's been happening in some of the schools is that the kids that are in these classes end up going to the kids that are opted out and telling mm. them that they're going to hell and bullying them about the fact that you know they're not going to live forever in heaven that they're off to this fiery hell because that's what they get told in these lessons yep 
And what can you expect? You cannot expect primary school children to to be critical thinkers and 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 challenge the ideas. It's just not going to happen. No. And then and then by the time you get to high school, you get uh, these uh, travelling church youth groups come in and do um, presentations and musical things at assembly or whatever. And we, we in my school, we got the ones who said, you, you know, every time you date someone, they tear off a piece of your heart, and you know that the sticky piece of sticky tape becomes less sticky and. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, and Arise Church, I've been watching a few of their talks. The ones on money have been painful, but even more painful have been the relationship talks and listening to John and Gillian Cameron, uh, the heads of Arise Church, talking about that same thing that, yes, you're, you're no longer whole if you have sex before you're married and, you know, part of you isn't being given to your future partner, which is unfair. But beyond that, the most surprising one was hearing Gillian, John's wife, telling everybody when they were at the, uh, the front of this conference being interviewed that you can't fly solo which is basically a euphemism for no masturbation. Um, <laughs> the idea that a modern church Hang is on, trying what's, to what's stop this, what's people this from masturbating. Is this Sorry? can't or shouldn't? Can't or shouldn't? <laughs> I, I don't think God's going to strike you with lightning, but I, it seems to be the church's teaching is that, yeah, at the very least, you shouldn't be. Um, I don't know whether they kick people out of the church for masturbating, but at the very <laughs> well, least. Presumably it's... they would if they were doing it during a church service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, that you'd imagine so, yes. Uh... But, yeah, it, it's really weird. And, I, Bronwyn, I, I think – I've, I've never made that connection before. You've made a really good point that, you know, compared to the slight concern about Mataranga Mari, the amount of Christian education we or instruction that we absolutely do have in our schools mm -hmm. is disgusting. It's much more of a problem and much more something that we should be focused on. Yeah, at least with Mataranga Mari, there is a promise that, you know, we'll have balanced creation myths being taught in our schools and not just an overwhelming <laughs> number for Christian creation myths, I suppose. <laughs> Bicultural nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so coming back to what Rebecca uh, did her videos on, I, I think I would just recommend anybody who has uh, any interest in the topic, which I would think any any uh, Kiwis should, um, to go and have a look at those videos. She makes some very good points, and from the perspective of an of an outsider, um, I think she's done a very very good job. Um, so after we published the newsletter, we did get one of our members uh, email us and and complain um, about what the the content of the Mataranga Maori item in the newsletter. Um, so we obviously we're not going to identify who who sent us the email, um, but briefly uh, this person was complaining that uh, there was no discussion on uh, the role of free speech in all of this. Uh, so this person goes on to say that they're not a scientist, but it seems clear to me that all too often, that we have all too often ignored what more primitive people learned over many generations. So that, that's good. Um, what concerns me here, however, is the vicious attack on the two, of, on two academics in particular, one of whom is a Maori led by Susie Wiles, rather than enter into a civilised debate on the issue, she encouraged others to attack them personally. And, and he ends up saying, um, I'm disappointed that you have not seen fit to come to the defence of free speech, without which we have no democracy. 
Um, so he's kind of saying that this is a, a free speech speech issue, I, I think, and that he's criticising Susie Wiles and Professor Hindi um, of writing this letter and um, being critical of the writers of the, the letter to the listener. Um, so it's, it's hard to see how that is, uh, that is um, curtailing their free speech. Yeah, I think the normal argument about free speech where people get it wrong is a different one. The the argument we normally see is that um, if you're taking away someone's platform, that you are denying them free speech. So, you know, if, if you don't publish their article that they've written, you're denying their free speech, which is obviously nonsense. You know, free speech is a right to say what you like. It's not a right to anybody else's platform in order to say it. But this one's a little bit different. This one's basically seems to be even more extreme, the idea that criticism of what you say shouldn't be allowed, that it's curtailing someone's free speech if somebody else turns around and says, I think what you've said is wrong, <laughs> because that's what's happened. There, there was no vicious personal attack, right? There was a no. counter letter that was uh, signed by a couple of thousand people. And I believe there were some anonymous complaints that were sent to the Royal Society about two of the members, well, three at the time, but one has since died. So two now. So there, there yeah, was and, definitely and- a rebuttal. Yeah, so perhaps he is meaning that that vicious attack might well have been the complaints to the uh, Royal Society, but we don't know who made those complaints. Um, Possibly, but that that's how these things are dealt with, right? You know, I, I yeah. submit complaints all the time to advertising standards and MedSafe and other very places. Very vicious, very <laughs> vicious, Mark. This is how we deal with stuff when it's wrong. We report it. We um, we let people know who are in a position to do something about it. And this is not curtailing free speech. Um, and yeah, these guys, their free speech was not curtailed. I mean, their, their original letter was published in The Listener. I believe there was a follow-up letter in The Listener as well. And they've been published elsewhere since. Their voice, if anything, has been amplified by the media. People have been making sure that everybody can read what they've had to say. Their free speech has not been curtailed hmm. and of course free speech does not come without consequences <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and so people are quite right to be able to criticize yeah and that we we need that we we you know we can't have it so that people's free speech means that nobody can criticize them we we need that debate to be happening and that's what happened and i think a lot of people didn't like that others disagreed with the um, the listener letter writers, and and they're seeing this as not being okay. But it's absolutely fine if you're in the minority. Maybe you should think about what you believe and what you've said, and and go back and and you know reconsider. Mm. That that raises an interesting point, doesn't it? So that because um, in the in the last episode of the podcast, I do believe that. Uh, that I talked about somebody who had uh, written in some emails on the Nuremberg uh, site. And I believe, Mark, that you encouraged me to go and uh, complain to their <laughs> employer. I did indeed. And how's that gone since, Craig? Well, I, I, I did follow through with that. I did write a uh, complaint to the employer and, uh, and it seemed to stir up some shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it politely, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, we uh, we got a um, a couple of cease and desist emails from the person in question, um, saying that we were to uh, to take down 
the screenshots that we'd taken of uh, of this person's emails emanating from the Nuremberg NZ site. Um, and also I had to go and delete uh, any tweets that I'd written about it, including those of a third party. <laughs> yeah, you've been asked to delete someone else's tweets, which was just <laughs> yes. like, how does that happen? <laughs> yes. Um, now I'm not going to name any names or go too much further into it, but um, the, uh, so I contacted the employer and also another fairly prominent New Zealand company, which this person happened to be working for in seemingly a contract role. And uh, I I got an email back from um, a prominent person at that company saying that they treated the matter very seriously and they were looking into it. But of course, for privacy reasons, they couldn't let me know of what the actual outcome was going to be. But uh, it does sound like we've um, uh, <laughs> made life difficult for uh, the, the person sending out the emails on the Nuremberg NZ site. Which, Which I think is a good thing. Yeah, some some could see as not a very nice thing to do, but this person has been basically threatening members of the media and possibly politicians as well with being tried and hanged for having promoted the vaccines. I mean, this person obviously is not playing by the normal rules of society here and uh, has become quite vicious, let's say, to use a word maybe in proper context, um, at, at wanting to see people killed. I mean, we don't even have the death penalty in this country yeah. and, and they think it's OK to be calling for it. Yeah, I think any pleas, uh, you know, towards saving their employment um, comes far, far down the line of priorities for society <laughs> than, uh, you know, not demanding the death penalty that does not exist. <laughs> but what I found interesting about the, the first email we received or you received, it's all you, um, <laughs> is that it, the person said that they had consulted a lawyer and from reading the email, as far as I can tell, this was like a sovereign citizen, free man of the land lawyer, not, you know, a normal <laughs> lawyer who can actually practice law, because it, it just talked in a way that, as far as I can tell, was just pseudo legalese rather than anything that actually would stand up in a court of law. Mm. But you don't really want to test these things. Um, no, and, no, absolutely and, and, not. And I did, I did run the uh, the email that got sent to me by an actual lawyer, not not somebody who works in that particular field. But uh, she suggested that if I was really worried about it, then I should consult the QC at four hundred and fifty dollars an hour <laughs> for some advice. I thought, um, no. I <laughs> so, if anybody would like to donate to the New Zealand Skeptics Legal Fund. <laughs> If you would like more engaging and exciting articles for the newsletter and for our podcast, please. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If we have enough money in our in our fund, we could poke some more bears. Absolutely. <laughs> we would do so joyfully and gleefully. Yes. Anyway, the uh, the last I heard from that person was well over a week ago now. So I think the uh, the issue has calmed down a bit. I've not received any more threatening emails. So um, I think uh, I think it's all good. Uh, the one thing we did do was to actually take down the publicly available screenshot that I took. Um, so it's no longer uh, publicly accessible on the on the uh, the on the internet. Although obviously we still have private copies of it. 
Yeah, I, I think we we talked about it as a committee and as the the one thing the person ended up fixating on this screenshot being available online and we needed to take it down. It seemed prudent that we, you know, because it materially didn't make much of a difference. The complaints had been made. You'd done a good job with that. And the ball was rolling. It, it No skin off our nose that that screenshot was taken down. So we were happy to give them the win for that one, I think. But I think we also let those employers know that we were taking it down in the email that was sent requesting it down. So, um, <laughs> you know, yes, it, wasn't then, quite, it wasn't quite a, uh, you know, no. us being ordered and us, do, you know, doing, doing away with it with our tail yes. between our legs. It was, OK, sure. But, you know, here's a fi- here's a final salvo. You know? <laughs> yes. Should you actually need a copy of that screenshot, I'd be happy to provide it. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Mark, you were going to talk about um, ticks. Yeah. So this is an interesting one and and something I think um, maybe is something of a public service. Um, (laughs) My daughter came home recently and talked about um, one or more of her friends at school who had started having issues with physical tics. Um, So, you know, kids, teenage um, girls who were having these uncontrollable tics where they'd maybe hit themselves or they'd have sudden violent movements that they couldn't control. And having heard this, it it reminded me of an article I'd read a little while ago with the suggestion that this isn't a, a physical condition with the brain, that this is something that's more psychological and a really interesting phenomenon for which we're lucky that we have an expert in this country. We have Robert Bartholomew in Auckland, and the, um, the condition is a mass psychogenic illness. And so I went hunting for this and I found a great article from The Atlantic that was documenting this recent phenomenon. Um, And the the whole thing was just really, really good to read. Um, Basically, the idea is that there's been a history of these mass psychogenic illnesses where people start to panic when uh, something happens that they might be sick with something and that this idea of being sick will spread. And we have instances in New Zealand that are interesting, like the Parnell leak, where some chemicals were taken in barrels were taken off of a ship in Auckland and stored in Parnell. And I think at least one of the barrels had leaked and hundreds of people started to feel they were getting ill. They were being admitted to hospital. I think, Craig, you've read something more about this. Yeah, it's quite an interesting case. So it happened back in 1973. Uh, so there was a, a ship that came into into the Auckland port, and there were some. It was transporting some barrels of some sort of chemical, and some of those barrels had had developed a leak, and there was this sort of sweet smell that came out of them. And so I think it was en route to somewhere in Australia, but because of the leaking barrels, they decided that they should uh, stop in, in Auckland to, to sort the problem out, presumably. Anyway, so um, they, they docked in, in, um, in the Auckland port. And for anybody who doesn't know the geography of Auckland, uh, Parnell is just sort of up, up the hill from, um, from the Auckland port. And so this sweet smell started permeating through Parnell and uh, a lot of people started feeling sick and and started, um, and there were evacuations from um, the residences in Parnell. 
of quite quite a number of people because they're all sort of uh, feeling sick and uh, everybody's worried about uh, the effect of this um, chemical. And I think partly it was down to the fact that the chemical was misidentified and somebody somehow um, identified it as a much more dangerous chemical than it actually was. So anyway, after uh, I think it was about a week or so, um, everybody went back home and nobody actually uh, had actually suffered any ill effects. And uh, they pointed out that, well, the, the crew on the ship was exposed to much more of this chemical and they didn't have any actual any actual illnesses mm-hmm. compared to the, the people in Parnell who just caught a whiff of it. <laughs> so ah, an interesting story. Yeah. And Bronwyn, just this afternoon, you sent me um, an article about another incident that I'd never heard of before. Yeah, so this was in Portugal, and um, a bunch of students at, at, I think it was almost around the country, started coming down with what they thought was a life-threatening illness. However, an episode of a very popular teen soap opera called um, Strawberries with Sugar had very much all their characters at their fictional high school came down with the same symptoms. So it took um, the Portuguese authorities a few days to figure it out. Um, But Mark, how might this be sort of different from say a mass hysteria incident or what we would know as mass hysteria? It's basically connected to mass hysteria. It's, it's the same kind of thing, but this is, this is a, a variety of mass hysteria, which is about physical illness and can manifest in physical ways. Um, whereas I think the mass hysteria is more kind of a, a mental thing only. But yeah, it's it's interesting. So from what I read of that Portuguese incident, people actually ended up with rashes. I'm not sure whether that's because they started scratching themselves and that would cause a rash, but they were seeing actual physical symptoms, even though this disease just came about because of a, a fictional TV show and a lot of kids being impressionable and having seen it. And mm. I, I think that's fascinating how that can happen. Um, and, and so it seems to be with this latest trend and it is now a global trend. So as I read the article, I found that just before the beginning of COVID, um, people were starting to see this and apparently COVID has accelerated it. This uh, series of physical ticks and it was noticed in part because a bunch of psychiatrists from around the world went to a conference and they started talking about how they were noticing this same set of symptoms uh, around the world. And they they noticed that actually not only in general were these new physical tics and these vocal tics um, just suddenly exploding. They were seeing a a massive increase in the number of them, but they were so hyper-specific. They they were so identical in so many ways. So for the English-speaking world, a lot of these, especially teenage girls, were saying the word beans. And in Germany, they were saying things like flying sharks and you are ugly. And so once they realize that this is becoming like a, a phenomenon where, you know, th- there's no chance that like people with Tourette's, they don't all end up with the same specific phrases. They all have their own phrases that are very much to do with their upbringing and, you know, the compulsions that they pick up of things that they their brain tells them they, has, they have to do. So everybody 
now suffering from this exactly the same words as a problem, um, they went looking for what it was. And they ended up finding out that there are some influential YouTubers and TikTok <laughs> video creators who actually have Tourette's in most cases, although not in all cases, who have been trying to demystify their condition. So that, from what I can tell, they've been doing a really good job. They've basically gone online. They've said, look, here's a day in the life of someone with Tourette's. I will film myself trying to eat food. Food. I will film myself just trying to have a normal conversation. And it lets people know that Tourette's is not a nice condition and that these are the kinds of things you can expect. But these accounts have become really popular and they now have millions of subscribers. And it's these phrases, beans, flying sharks, you are ugly. They come from these influencers. And so this, again, appears to be something that has become infectious from, I guess, a, a psychological point of view rather than a physical point of view. Um, and so it's not Tourette's. It's not a debilitating condition that someone will have to put up with for life. This is just something where there may well be an underlying condition. And quite often, something like stress or anxiety can cause tics, can cause these kinds of issues. But then there's a layer on top of that of having learned online and learned from friends at school that if you have these things, that the way that they manifest is through hitting yourself or um, suddenly jumping up into the air or saying these particular words. And so the particular manifestations, are kind of, they're kind of given license from what I can tell to happen. Whereas for a lot of these people, normally coping with the stress and the anxiety that they've got, it wouldn't come out in these physical ways. So although there is a real condition underlying it, it's the symptoms that are kind of the, the bit that's just not, I don't want to say not real, but you know, it, it's not something that's a, a problem with their brain chemistry. It's just something they've picked up. It's a learned um, set of behaviors that go along with something that might well be underneath it. So the good news with this is that unlike Tourette's, which you have to use some pretty serious drugs to treat if you want to treat it, so antipsychotics and ADHD medicines, with this, which they're now labeling either functional tics or uh, there's another name for it as well, tic-like behavior. Um, so these, because they're more of a social thing, they can go away after a little while. And, and certainly with my daughter's friends, it sounds like after a week or so, they've just disappeared. They, they've just gone. And apparently something that can accelerate this is when the person suffering from it learns that this is all it is, that it's just something they've picked up from friends. This is not something they're going to have to suffer from for life. As soon as they learn that this is just kind of a socially picked up problem, uh, it goes away pretty much as quickly as it, as it comes often, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Hmm. I guess it could certainly be an element of uh, attention seeking and uh, just sort of uh, pretending you have this tick just in order to, I don't know, have something different about you that Maybe. Yeah. But I, I mean, the, the big thing I don't want to do is accuse people of that, because I think like with any psychogenic illness, there is a temptation for people to jump to. It's all in your head. You can stop ah, it whenever you yeah, like. But sure, sure, sure. But there's, there's likely to be at least an element of that initially, perhaps. Yeah. And I, I imagine teen girls, you know, 
peer pressure to to do what other hmm. other people are doing in their peer group, whether it's good or bad or weird. I imagine there's something going on there as well. I imagine it's quite a complex thing, um, but it's you know I think for anybody who does have children that might come home one day with these ticks, I, I think the idea is just be reassured that this probably isn't something deep-seated that's going to need a lifetime of treatment. This is likely something that is going to go away fairly quickly because I believe when it comes to real Tourette's, the symptoms start to show up maybe mainly in boys, not girls, and mm. at five to seven years old. Um, so the fact that this is predominantly girls and it's being seen to disappear as quickly as it comes makes it look very much like it's a mass psychogenic illness. And in this article, Robert Bartholomew, our local expert in Auckland, says as much. He's, he's been looking into it, and he's fairly confident that this is, um, this is just another one of those things that goes around, basically. Interesting. So, Bronwyn, tell us about the benefits of cease therapy. There, there, there are none. Uh, <laughs> too long, don't read. Um, good night. This is the podcast. Goodbye. Um, oh, hang on. What is cease? <laughs> oh, my God. It is basically pure pseudoscience. Um, it's cease. Um, what do you call it? An initialism standing for complete elimination of autism spectrum expression. So it's, you know, a pretty much a mixture of high dose vitamin C um, or what's hang on, quote hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I have to interrupt you. That is not an initialism. It's an acronym. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, I think and it an, might be both. I, I think an initialism is anything that's turned into initials, and it's also an acronym if you can say it as a word. Okay. Well, <laughs> my interpretation of an initialism is something that is something you cannot pronounce. Yeah. But I, I'm it might to be proven wrong. <laughs> Sorry, I derailed you, Bronwyn. Yeah, you did. How rude. Um, anyways, back on topic. Um, so it's it's a pretty much a mixture of high dose vitamin C, orthomolecular support, which is basically um, the idea of diets, um, and then you know dietary restrictions as well, homeopathy. Um, pretty much, it was developed by the late Dutch doctor Titus Smits, um, who claimed to have healed about three hundred children with this method. Um, but pretty much his whole stance was about autism was about caused by three different things. 70% of cases were due to um, vaccines. 25% was due to um, toxic toxins from medications. And then 5% could be due to just general diseases. So now, his, presumably these stats were just pulled out of his butt rather than absolutely. from any particular study. Uh, no, no evidence base, you know, just pure money, money-driven greed. Um, so so all, all these vaccines have been big, giving out lately and we've now got a huge number of autistic people because of them? Yeah, yeah. So, but the irony is how we cure that then is to give them very diluted versions of the vaccine. <laughs> so the like cures like idea of homeopathy makes and, sense, and, and at least them, within homeopathy. Yeah, yeah. And um, you give them four um, successive remedies of the um, vaccine that you think um, sort of contributed to the person's autism. Okay, so a treatment might be multiple vaccines diluted if multiple vaccines were the cause. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, of course, I mean, there are actually people who've been trained to administer this therapy in New Zealand. Um, looking at the website, still about maybe 17 to 18 people are homeop homeopaths who are offering this treatment. And in particular, I think it was back in 2017, um, Mark Hanna, Daniel Ryan and Jonathan Harper did write complaints to the ASA. And while, you know, 
it did lead to changes in the website for this one particular company. That company is still in operation. They're still offering the therapy. And really, if you're offering the therapy that has the claim within it, within its title being complete elimination, um, it's absolutely gobsmacking. Um, and today, the month of Autism Acceptance Month, <laughs> that we're still trying to, um, you know, finding people who are trying to cure themselves or trying to cure their children. Yeah, that that whole thing. I remember when we uh, we first founded at our activism meetings and and just read about it. it. It was gobsmacking. Firstly, the idea that there's a group of homeopaths out there that think they can treat homeopathy, and then secondly, to find <laughs> uh, sorry to treat I mean, to treat autism, and and secondly, to uh, to find that on the the Global Seas website there was a list of New Zealand practitioners. It was like this is not okay. Nobody in New Zealand should be allowed to offer this. It was ridiculous. And looking at it, um, both in the UK, but certainly in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, and this is going to sound like a bit of an oxymoron, I suppose that's the word. Um, the regulatory body of naturopaths um, came out against cease therapy and said, you know, if you're going to be regulated by our, our organization, you cannot use cease therapy. Oh, that's good. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> a silver lining, maybe. So I've just been having a look at the, the New Zealand website, or the, the website from New Zealand, and there's still quite a lot of people all around the country. There must be at least uh, sort of 15 people listed in various areas around the country who uh, claim to be able to administer the cease therapy. Mm. Uh, now, maybe, course- maybe our next activism meeting, we can have a targeted campaign for this one. Yeah. Mm. Um, I will have to say um, if one, if there's going to be a silver lining to this pandemic, um, it has really significantly slowed down the recruitment campaign for more homeopaths to pick up cease therapy as to, or to be accredited for cease therapy providers. And as well, I mean, interesting thing I've saw on some websites, you know, if you're, if you have this big fear that vaccination is going to cause autism, well, can a child with autism who is not vaccinated be um, eligible for a cease therapy? Lucky for those kids, they can, because general homeopathy can still be part of the treatment regimen. And also um, in those 45 minutes appointments that the parents can have with a homeopath, um, you know, they often claim, or the homeopaths can sometimes claim that the parents actually realize that maybe there was a medication that they took during pregnancy, or maybe they did use deodorant with aluminum in it. So therefore there is, you know, there's always, always justification for them to leech money off of vulnerable, scared, underinformed people. There are so many treatments out there that do that, where the whole thing seems to be predatory, right? Maximizing how much money you can extract from worried parents. It's horrible. And, and putting a burden of guilt on the parents as well for to make them think that their, their child's condition is somehow their fault, mm-hmm. something and that they mean, did or didn't do. And, you know, for, what can I say, a cachet of unproven therapies or not evidence-supported, um, you know, high doses of vitamin C can actually cause severe dehydration in young children due to the excessive, excessiveness of diarrhea. You know, you just can't brush it off and say that's not, that's insignificant, particularly if you're having children as young as two or three being diagnosed. <sighs> right. Well, well, we'll get rid of that then. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice we'll if we could just decide to get rid of it and it happened? We'll, we'll yeah. cease the cease therapy. Right. Yeah. So membership corner. Yep. Yeah, um, 
you know, we do have a few activities coming up over the next two to three weeks. Um, this week, we do have the in-person Skeptics in the Pub at 2 Gray Street at the inside the Intercontinental Hotel at the Lobby Lounge. That starts at 6 o'clock on Friday. And what is this Friday? Is it Friday the 22nd? Second. Second. Yeah. Um, so we'll be looking forward to seeing you there. Um, then next week, we have two skeptical activities. Um, again, on Thursday night is the skeptical activism meetup. That'll be held at the Fork and Brewer from about what time, Mark? I think it's set to 6.30 now, but I'm normally there from 6 o'clock. And it sounds like we'll be focusing on cease therapy next week. Yeah. So that'll be the um, Thursday, the 28th of April. And then on Friday, the 29th, it's our next installment of Skeptics in Cyberspace. So um, we'll be advertising that on our Facebook page and on the Meetup page. So just sign up and you'll get the link sent to you on the day. So um, that's just a Zoom meeting, very low pressure. Connect in, have a chat, bring a beer if you want to. And of course, um, if you're in the South Island, just follow the Christchurch Skeptics page. There's usually a weekly uh, trivia session going on of some sort. And then in Dunedin, usually about once a month, they will have a meetup. So just follow, just join and follow those groups for uh, more, de more details. And I guess before we sign off, you know, always got a plug. We're a great group of people. Come join the skeptics. Um, we'd love to have you. And, you know, you get the chance to attend our wonderful, wonderful conferences. You can also uh, send us some articles that you think are, are worth our time and uh, worth the eyeballs of our readers for our newsletter. Do you have any evidence that we're, we're a great group of people? Uh, it's I'm purely anecdotal. <laughs> <sighs> Let's hope we are, because if we're on the wrong side, that's not going to be good. <laughs> I feel like the skeptics are a force for good, but now you've got me doubting myself. <laughs> and I guess, and I guess one final thing before we sign off, um, we are still doing the um, 365 day skeptical calendar. So we are always keen to hear if you know of a, a particular event, stranger, the better. Um, we have a form that's on, that'll be attached to the show notes. You can just um, send in your event, the date that it occurred, potentially some evidence, be it a YouTube link or a Wikipedia page. And yeah, we'll follow it up. And if it's great, we'll pop it into our calendar. So that's just <laughs> skeptical historical events. If you go to skeptics.nz slash history, I've embedded the form in there. Nice. And yeah, anything that happened on a particular date where you know the date that would be of interest to skeptics. So the six-legged salamander and um, uh, the Parnell leak is another one, I think, that we might have managed to add although that happened over a period of time, but there was a first day for that one. So any event like that would be uh, really good to add to our calendar if you can think of something. UFO sightings, they're great. Mm -hmm. I found the general month of when Brian Tamaki predicted that in five years' time, destiny would rule New Zealand. <laughs> Guess what? It didn't. <laughs> So that was over five years ago then. Oh, yeah, that was what? Um, I, th he, I think he initially made a prediction in October 20. No, yeah, 2003. So 2003. And okay, then they but... got by the 10th anniversary of Destiny Church, which would have been in 2008. They would have ruled the country. Wow. Mm -mm. Well, they're still trying, though, right? They still keep starting political parties and asking people to vote for them. <laughs> it's a spiritual ruling. <laughs> oh, I like it. Well played. <laughs> Yeah, just like uh, Harold Camping, you know, when he was predicting the end of the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. 
All right. Well, uh, that, that was a that was a good episode. And I think we've uh, pretty much uh, done our hour. Um, at one point, we were thinking about doing a half hour, half hour, forty minute episode, but it never seems to be that short. So not happening, is it? No, people no. have to listen for an hour now. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Hopefully you're enjoying it. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to give us some feedback, uh, you can contact us on Twitter at the at YearNarPod, or you can send us an email, uh, news at skeptics.nz. And so um, that's it for for this uh, fortnight. We'll uh, sign off and uh, see you all next time. Awesome. Bye. See you later. Bye.